As someone who spends a ton of my professional time coaching and mentoring, the work of Big Brothers Big Sisters really sings out to me. I know what it means to have someone near your court helping you to navigate what can be a bumpy journey. We can all look back at someone in our lives who believed in us, advocated for us, and was a champion for our success. These folks and the impact they had, indelible. Believing in us when we did not believe in ourselves. For over 100 years, Big Brothers Big Sisters has created a massive army of hundreds of thousands of advocates at the ready called Bigs to support an equally massive army of kids called Littles for whom these adults are a lifeline. BBBS is a national organization with over 250 affiliates. Our guest today leads the Massachusetts Bay Affiliate. In its 70 years of service, 20,000 matches. Matches in which the bigs get as much as they give. Our guest left the corporate media business to join BBBS in 2005, and so in this, she and I are kindred spirits. With only a year under her belt, Wendy arrived and started to make some big changes. There was a merger, an acquisition, and ambitious plans for the future. No grass is growing under her feet. She also developed really interesting corporate partnerships, and we want to talk about that strategy and the benefits to both parties. I'm guessing that our guest never met a goal she didn't hit or an ambitious goal that didn't inspire her. Our conversation today should help listeners think about growth in a much clearer way. Nonprofit mergers, acquisitions, partnerships, oh my. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Wendy Foster. She's the CEO of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Massachusetts Bay the largest BBBS affiliate in New England, with a 70-year history of helping under-resourced children thrive through transformational one-on-one -on -one relationships with adult mentors. Since becoming CEO in 2009, she has led the agencies to significantly increase revenue and the number of children served, with plans to double service in the next phase of growth. She's nationally recognized for her leadership and expertise within the BBBS nationwide network and has more than three decades of executive leadership in the for-profit and nonprofit sector. Before transitioning to the nonprofit sector, Foster served as a senior exec with America Online, AOL, remember that? Held management roles at a vision at a division of Time Warner. She's an active leader in a number of community organizations, a member of the Massachusetts Women's Forum, and a big sister to little sister Chanel. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Joan, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Thank you for having me. Um, me too. So let's start with that kindred spirit stuff we got going on. You and I both landed in the nonprofit space after a successful career in the media business. What was the catalyst? Did you have a, a kind of an aha moment? So you mentioned that I was with America Online. Uh, by 2002, AOL had achieved its mission which was to make the internet the internet that we know today. And they had merged with Time Warner, or some say acquired it. And I had previously worked with Time Warner. And so I was in the part of the combined companies that was trying to sew together all the assets. And it was very clear in that unique place that the two companies' uh, cultures were almost antithetical. And uh, there was a lot of difficulty there. 
and just at that time, I also turned 40. And so I met midlife and my father was dying. And I had a very visceral sense of mortality. And those three things together created um, a, a reason for me to take a real pause. And I stepped off the track thinking I'm, I wanted to do something different. And I wanted it to be very meaningful to me, no matter how much time I might have left. And that launched me into my nonprofit journey. Um, after we finish the recording, we could do some name dropping because the Time Warner family, uh, I just have scores of people that I know from my own uh, experience there too. Um, and um, the, the mortality thing is a pretty powerful driver, isn't it? It really, really is. I think the older you get, the more you understand uh, the greater context in which we live and how many people struggle and how systemic things really put barriers in front of so many people. And it's a absolute joy to be able to work against one of those barriers. Agreed. Um, you know, it's funny you said that you were 40 at midlife. I um, always joke that I moved from for-profit to nonprofit when I was 39, and I was either trying to avoid a midlife crisis or smack <laughs> in the middle of one. So, um, so um, lots, of, lots of folks make this transition. Lots of folks consider it. Um, how would you uh, briefly describe how the worlds are different? Well, I think about it in terms of six uh, big areas. The first is the complexity um, of the world, the set of constituents that we deal with, staff, board members, volunteers, clients, partners, community and civic leaders, donors, supporters. Never in my professional for-profit career was I ever in a business that was as complex in terms of the constituents I dealt with. Um, and, those, set, and those constituents, if I may interrupt it, those constituents have a great deal of power too. I mean, there's a they great, all do. There's a great, there's a great quote in uh, Jim Collins from Good to Great in the Social Sector, which by the way, if you are listening and you do not own a copy of that, um, I, I want you to like, pause the podcast and go to uh, Amazon and get yourself a copy. It's only 35 pages. It's not daunting. But anyway, uh, interviews the head of the Girl Scouts and uh, someone says, how does, it, how does it feel to be on, you know, sort of on top of this big organization? And her response is, I'm not on top of anything because the power mm -hmm. in many ways comes from all around you, doesn't it? Yeah, it's distributed. You're, you're very much in the center of a wheel and your job is to make that wheel go round and round by getting everybody else on the wheel to do what you need them to do. Um, you, had, um, you had other ways in which... Yeah. It, yeah. So I also think, you know, it's, it's a collective effort, which is a beautiful thing about it. You alone can only do so much. You can have a great strategy, but you can't execute it unless you've got the staff to do it. You've got the donors to support it with the funding and you've got the community backing and the clients willing to, to work with you. You are really a conductor of a very collaborative, collective effort. Um, and one of the great joys comes out of that. Um, I would say another big factor or difference is this conundrum of funding. Um, it, we, in our business, are philanthropy-based. That is the main source of our funding. And so um, unlike in a for-profit business where you have many levers to drive your revenue, our, our really only lever is the power of our mission, the power of the impact and the evidence of uh, impact that we have, and then our relationships with our donors. 
Um, and it's, it's like doing a high wire act um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And then I would say, you know, it's constant. The need never goes away. No matter how much you do, there's more behind it. And the deeper you go and the more you penetrate the need, the more that you uncover through these layers of the onion peeling back how much more there is to do. That's a very different feeling than I ever had in my for-profit um, endeavors. For me, it's sort of um, every decision has a kind of urgency to it mm. that that didn't exist for me in the corporate sector. I mean, certainly I felt very motivated to do my job well. And when something was urgent, it was urgent. But I often think that nonprofits have a very difficult time modulating between the urgent and the important, that everything just feels like it's a kind of a 911. (laughs) I think that's really true. Part of that is because you're somewhat resource constrained. The other thing is, you know, when I was making the transition from for-profit to the nonprofit sector, I ultimately worked with a coach. And I was reflecting on why some of the missions I had worked for in for profit, I'd ultimately kind of run up out of gas on. Like you, I loved every job I had and I was super motivated around all of them, but ultimately they were accomplished and I wanted to move on to the next thing. And the coach said to me one day, what you need to do is find a mission that could never be accomplished in your lifetime. And then you will never run out of gas on it, but be careful what you wish for (laughs) because it's true. There's this constant sense of mission and it needs to be done and it's urgent and you have to then be very careful about drawing boundaries. Ah, boundaries. I think there's a podcast in that, but I just don't know who the guest would be. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so let's get to it. I'm, I'm struck by how quickly, right? It can't, so you're, you know, I, I often felt like I was, you know, E.T. I had, land in a, uh, I had landed in uh, Elliot's backyard when I got to the nonprofit sector. And I'm struck by how quickly you moved to make big changes. Now, some of them are already in the works, but based on the timeline, it looks like there was mergers and acquisitions in a in very short period of time after you arrived when you when you were probably still getting kind of a, a lay of the land how did you know enough about your own organization the kind of its strengths and its weaknesses to execute um, a merger or an acquisition that made sense so I joined in uh, late 05 and in late 06, the organization completed a merger and an acquisition of two smaller <laughs> big brother, big sister affiliates. Did your coach um, send you, did your coach send you flowers and say, be careful what you wish for, Wendy? Well, I wasn't the CEO at the time. I was leading uh, service delivery in the organization. So certainly I was, I was deeply involved in those. And there's a lot to talk about in, in those as well. But, um, you know, what's interesting in the nonprofit sector, in the human service side, is there are so many organizations, so competitive. And what is great about being in a national affiliate network like ours is that there is an opportunity for merger and acquisition, for consolidation, and for aggregating scale. And so it was a pretty natural thing for us to um, come together with two other affiliates that were both in slightly weaker positions and be able to create something stronger out of the combination. Um, I don't know if that would have been as obvious had they been organizations we were not affiliated with. But in this particular case, that made a lot of sense. We 
put together some territory that was um, in great need of service, and we were able to strengthen two organizations that um, uh, on their own were not as strong. I will say, though, that those mergers and acquisitions are complicated. They're never what you expect. And in fact, both required a lot of investment and a lot of time and a lot of learning on our part. And I wouldn't say that we really had them humming along for quite a number of years. I, um, I, I devoted a podcast last year to a discussion of nonprofit mergers, and it was terrific, and I'm going to link to it under the podcast notes here. But the story was not told from the perspective of the CEO. Uh, and I, I, I believe there are many, many things to get right. And with a merger, presumably it's about setting clear terms. This is, this is, what, this is what I bring to the table. This is what you bring to the table and some sort of a, an accountability mechanism on that. Um, but with any kind of... Um, shift of this sort you're um what's the what's the phrase culture eats strategy for lunch um, right. there are organizational culture issues tell me what you think uh you all did well as you as you incorporated these affiliates in and lessons that you might have learned that would be of value to our listeners i would say that we failed well we failed multiple times, but we learned from each failure and got that. better and better. Um, we had to learn as an organization based in Boston how to effectively work with an organization based many miles away in a community that actually feels a world away and um, has its own culture as a community. This community in particular required that we have local leadership and finding the right balance between local control and central control was uh, paramount. And it took us a long time to find the right leaders, to be in the right relationship to that um, area, and to balance local and central in an effective way that made everybody grow and get stronger. Well, as you said that, I, I found myself thinking, were you sort of a hub, almost like national is to affiliates for BBABS, that you were sort of played that role on a smaller scale in your territory? I think that's a good way to think about how we operate now. Initially, we came in with a lot of command and control. Uh, you will do this. You will take on all of the vestiges that we have operating in Boston and um, that went over like a ton of bricks. Uh, it was not well received. Can I ask and, you a question? Yeah. Was that um, the command control thing? Was that just, um, what are the dynamics there? And I actually found myself wondering, is that something that you, was in your um, roller board from corporate America, that it was going to be neat and tidy and that it was, I wonder if, uh, how much of you and your for-profit experience um, played into, gee, this is going to be neat and tidy. You guys do what I tell you. Because people, that this is a, um, uh, you know, people think about corporate America this way, and sometimes, in fact, it is. So I think it was a couple of things. I think that we saw ourselves as having better answers. And the answers that we had developed, we thought would apply anywhere without modification, and that wasn't true. We learned from them as well. And 
we picked leaders in our own image as opposed to leaders that were able to balance both us up in Boston and what was needed from leadership in the local community. We also, interestingly, had a governing board that was transitioning from being a true governing board with fiduciary responsibility to being an advisory board to a governing board in Boston. A very difficult transition for anyone to have to give up some power and control. And so it was messy to be using, nonprofits are messy. This was a messy, messy merger to begin with. And, you know, there was also a question of structure. Should they be an independent business unit required to sink or swim on their own? Or did we bring resources from the central to and help? Was it, a, you know, the A plus B equals a, a, a sum greater than the parts? It took us a long time to figure out leadership, structure, governance, and how to balance the central and local. But we've I, done that well now, I think. So Yeah, as I was going to say, so if I went down to that one of those local, um, uh, so this place, you know, one of them that you brought into the into the fold and I took them out for cocktails, would they say, yes, indeed, it was a very bumpy ride and we sorted it out? And if they said they sorted it out, what would they attribute it to? Yes, I think they would say that it was a bumpy ride, but that it is um, – very strong now. And they would say that they kept um, holding out their local needs as being equally important and made sure that those were heard and listened to. And I think they found that they had a partner willing to listen on the other end and to learn along with them. I, I, I do believe the listening is pretty essential because otherwise the uh, if the person on the other end doesn't feel heard um, they get louder and they uh, and they get angry in fact and that can create the kind of tension that that will thwart a successful acquisition or merger absolutely i think in the best sense we've created something new in the combination of our two, as opposed to us absorbing something and it just becoming us. There's a new entity in the, in the combination now, meaning that we changed and they changed. Right. Right. That's kind of, that's, it's, um, there's something about, I think marriage that's a little bit like that, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That, the best marriages are, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about power for just a second. We have boards, so we have two different boards and we had, presumably we had somebody running, running the acquired entity. Um, there's a lot of uh, institutional arrogance, even in small organizations. Wow. I don't, I don't want to give up my power. They don't know what we know here. Um, what helps to shift that? Because I, regardless, I mean, you know, you can say that because you're a national organization and these, are, these were other affiliates, it's a little bit easier, and I, I'll buy that. But this is, this is common across any kind of situation. What's the best strategy for, how do, how do you deal with that? I know best, this is my organization. I'm on the board of this local entity. I didn't want to help. I don't want to be on the board of something in Boston. I want to be on the board of something in my own backyard. Like, how do you, how do you grapple with that? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. I think as um, as the larger of the two entities, you have to invest a lot of time and authentic and meaningful time getting to know people. You have to listen to them. You have to build relationship with them. You have to show up. And it might seem um, outproportioned to the return, but there's no other pathway. You have to show up and form relationships. You have to listen. You have to understand the concerns. You also have to be able to put a plan together that shows that there's going to be positive change and growth coming out of um, the merger. The, the, the goal of it was to grow and to do more than what was being done before. So you have to deliver the goods. Um, so you're both building and showing that you can bring the promise of the merger to fruition, but you're also spending all the right amount of time along the way, communicating, 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 and building relationship and listening. What you said is so, so, so important. And to me, it is the key to it, the difference between successful change management and change management that fails. In in the situation you've described, you probably have a s- smaller fish locally that's going to merge into, you know, your larger fish. Right. And um, any kind of change like that, that you have to draw a picture of what it's going to look like that's wonderful as a result of the merger. And that so often it is it is a, a framed from a scarcity model. It's framed from a salvation model and m- thus making that local entity feel weak right. and right. And feel like this is the only way, but framed as here's a picture of how the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Then I, then I want to be on that. I want to be swimming in your pond right. because I see that, I can be stronger locally because of this relationship. Right. We think now about that entity being powered by the central, right? And they feel tremendous ownership and pride in what they're accomplishing. We're in the back, they're in the front. And that's as it should be. It's not about us. It's about serving more children. And the way to do that is to let them lead and for us to power that to the extent that we can add value to what they're doing. I love that. I, and I do think words matter so, so much. And people understand what that means, powered by. Very, very good. So my guest today is Wendy Foster. She's the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Massachusetts Bay. It's the largest BBBS affiliate in New England with a 70-year history of helping under-resourced kids thrive through transformational one-on-one relationships with adult members, mentors. Um, Since becoming CEO in 2009, um, she has done a boatload of things to grow the scope and impact of this work and is, of course, herself a big sister to little sister Chanel. Let's move, um, if if you'd like to go with me here, to corporate partnerships. I think there's a lot for um, nonprofit leaders to learn about corporate partnerships. Um, you know, I, um, I remember when I first got to GLAD, uh, corporate 
they weren't really partnerships. There was discretionary money that the CEO had to buy a table at a gala. And then it Sponsorship. evolved. Yeah. Then it, then it evolved to, okay, so we want to score some diversity points. And so we're going to uh, uh, put money in the human resources budget for sponsorships. And um, in the latter years of my tenure, sort of just as you were, just as you were having your midlife crisis, and I was going <laughs> home, to, going home to chaperone uh, teenage kids, um, it started to really shift. Um, and I don't think many people even know where to begin to talk about partnerships that make both parties stronger. And so, the first thing I wanted to ask you is that. Um, does your corporate experience help you in thinking about the relationships between BBBS and, and corporate America? I absolutely believe it does, but I don't believe um, that uh, folks who don't have corporate experience can't also um, be extraordinarily good at this. And there's excellent evidence of that. But I think that I came to the nonprofit sector clearly with an understanding of how corporate leaders think. There's a bottom line focus. There's an employee focus. Um, and increasingly in their corporate engagement with the nonprofit sector, there's a strategic focus on the impact that that company wants to have in the community. And so, you know, I come at it not we're tin cupping with you, but we are here to tell you the value that I think we can bring to you, the company, by engaging with us. Uh, we can engage your employees and make them feel really great about you as an employer. Um, we can provide you with branding value. We can uh, provide you with an opportunity to impact the community that's very consistent with your overall strategic goals. It has to be presented as, here's what we can do for you. Yes, it does. And when it's not, you're one of thousands that are knocking at the door. And, you know, what all they're trying to do is keep you at bay. But if you can get in with a message of, here's the value we can bring to you, you're going to at least get an audience and be listened to. Um, so not everyone can articulate as eloquently or as clearly um, as Big Brothers Big Sisters on what you just described. Don't you think that for some nonprofits it's actually harder than others? I mean, you probably do some sort of a campaign that engages folks at a company in becoming bigs, right? Well, what's interesting, you know, we're shut out of a lot of companies if youth development or mentoring is not in their strategic wheelhouse. I see. If your strategic wheelhouse is housing or um, food scarcity, then we're not even on the dartboard. Uh, unless, of course, possibly some employees are actively engaged as mentors with us and they themselves are going to their company and saying, you know, we'd like to, you know, put some of our foundation money toward this organization. But the real strategic partnerships come when there's a connection between your organization's mission and the strategic impact that the 
corporation wants to have in the community. Uh, before I make you tell a story and, and tease it apart, do you think most corporations are really, really clear, or do you think the corporations have ways to go in defining their own strategic sort of, you know, what they are looking for uh, in, 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 a, in a strategic partnership with nonprofits? I've seen an enormous shift in the last five years in the number of companies that have a very specific stated strategic plan for community impact. I think increasingly companies are choosing in the large sense what they want to focus on. Separately, they're also very interested in what their employees want to focus on. And if you can't get into the company through their large-scale strategic impact, you can still get into the company by engaging with employees who find your mission compelling. So you have to actually be operating at both levels. But I do think there's a really big shift of companies choosing a strategic direction with their with their community impact. Um, it also seems to me, I, I, I feel like, and I don't know if you have had this experience, Wendy, but large companies, uh, almost all of them have affinity groups of yes. one sort or another. And I, um, it is to me the uh, a huge missed opportunity in the nonprofit sector for board recruitment. And I, when I work with boards and organizations, kind of holistically, that's sort of one of the one of the torches that I carry. But it's also affinity groups can be really valuable in building a relationship between your nonprofit and the corporation because those those groups exist to make their organizations stronger, more diverse, uh, to improve the culture, whatever that might be. Such a great point, and otherwise known as employee resource, resource groups or ERGs. Right. Um, and, and we intentionally, in our recruitment and our corporate engagement, seek to find the leaders in those ERGs. That is an outstanding way to get entree into a corporation and to your point to access diverse groups of employees that are really excited to learn about ways that they themselves can advance their ERG's um, goals by you know working together with your nonprofit. I was at <clears throat> I had a speaking engagement at Microsoft two weeks ago and had lunch with the uh, folks who lead their LGBT employee group. And I just thought to myself, these are the passionate leaders inside Microsoft and um, they are to be tapped in, in the nonprofit sector um, because they, they actually have, they're such kindred spirits with people who run, lead and work at, in this case, at LGBT nonprofits. And it's such a, um, such a great source of diverse staff, volunteers, uh, board members, because those people are feeling it. That's right. They are passionate about their ERG, and it's a, it's an excellent way to meet other senior leaders in the company. Because almost always, there's a senior executive leader who is um, sponsoring um, that group. So they are, bar none, an outstanding way to in, in make relationship at the corporate level. So let's. Um, I would love to hear. I would love to hear, and I know listeners would like to hear um, uh, an example of a corporate partnership that you have put into place. And I know you have devised one with Uber. And yes. so can, uh, ramble a bit and tell us the sort of the origin story and 
what each party was looking for? Um, let's start there and then I can sure. uh, pepper you with some questions. Love our relationship with Uber and the genesis of that relationship is actually a challenge that we have serving children in certain parts of our uh, metro area. Uh, Boston's um, public transportation system only reaches so far. And if you looked at a heat map of our service, you would find it lights up along the public transportation routes and gets you know, darker and darker, quieter and quieter, the further away you get from a, a bus line or a, or a T line. And um, we don't want zip code to be a child's destiny. So we're constantly trying to find ways to get mentors to kids who are just more difficult to reach because of public transportation. So uh, we were in a leadership team meeting one day and um, uh, I, I don't even remember who it was, but some very smart person on our team said, wouldn't it be great if Uber would give us free rides to get our volunteers to kids? And there was this moment of silence. We all looked at each other and we said, well, why don't we ask them? <laughs> so we reached out to Uber and they were extremely receptive for a meeting. And we shared with them our challenge in serving these kids who live further away um, and are less accessible. And Uber at the time was looking for ways to have community impact. Um, certainly they were front and center on a lot of different um, arenas in our metro area and fighting a lot of battles about access. And they wanted to um, be able to express in a very public way their commitment to the community. So we had a good match in terms of our ability to provide them with value and their ability to provide us with value. And Uber now every year gives us um, a bucket of dollars, which we can use um, to provide free Uber rides to mentors who are willing to be matched with children who are a little bit further away. And those mentors get eight free rides a month to see their mentee twice a month. They get to take an Uber from their home to their mentee, take their mentee in an Uber and go do something really fun and enriching, take an Uber to bring their mentee back, and then take an Uber to go back home. And we've been able to match hundreds more children with volunteers because of this partnership. And of course, it then opened the door to us coming into Uber and uh, conducting lunch and learns, if you will, or information sessions with their employees to get more of them involved as, as mentors. And both of us have received lots of wonderful PR. And this relationship has extended to other large metro cities in America where there are Big Brother, Big Sister affiliates and strong Uber um, uh, programs uh, because it's a, it's a wonderful model for community impact. Um, I have this vision, so tell me if I'm wrong. I have this vision of a development director at, at your organization saying, this is really this is really great, Wendy, but can they, can they write us a check too? <laughs> Certainly with all of our corporate partnerships, we look to extend the relationship in as many ways as we can and get as deeply engaged as we can. So we have uh, an Uber executive on our board of overseers, um, you know, Uber has uh, sponsored um, from a branding perspective, some of our fundraising events. So absolutely, as you have an entree, it is incumbent upon you to figure out how the resources of that enterprise can advance your mission in all of the ways that it can. Uh, and that, by the way, could include um, 
volunteering around core competencies that that company may have, skills that you need. I mean, it's not just money or board members, or in this case, you know, a resource that helps us match more kids, but it could be core, core expertise that can help you advance in other ways. Give me an example. Uh, well, we do a lot in technology. And for example, we have a board member who works at HP and uh, we collect a lot of data in our systems and we're certainly not big data in the real sense of big data, but for us, we collect a lot of data and we want our staff to be able to use that data and visualize it. And so we uh, got connected by our board member at HP with an organization that they have a relationship with called Insight Squared that visualizes big data. And we now have the ability for our staff who interface directly with uh, matches and coach them to be able to see all of the data that we're gathering on the, on the progress that that child is making in a visual way that allows them to really efficiently zero in on what's great, what needs more support. And otherwise, they'd have to go into the bowels of the system and pull out numbers and surveys. And it might take, you know, a good two hours to kind of refresh before every conversation. So that's an example of a company bringing to us their core expertise, not necessarily money or rides or board members. Um, right, but, but it that is, happens left and right. It builds it, what you're describing here is a... is capacity building in a, in, a, totally. in a true sense. What totally. are the skills and competencies that your organization needs and yep. who's out there that would like to be connected with your organization and providing those skills and competencies ends up being yeah. a win for both. And it's incumbent on you, the organization, if you've got a really strong strategic plan, to be connecting that plan in everything that you do. So if your plan is about technology investment as one of its planks, and you're not thinking, who are the top 15 technology companies that we have to be connected to as an organization or that we should be you know, looking to build relationship with, to have board members, and so on and so forth, then I don't think that you are really living your strategy. The um, the other thing that you mentioned just now is important is um, the connection between the strategic plan and the composition and makeup of your board. Absolutely. And uh, I will just say this for the record, that if you have a strategic plan and they're not a series of goals for the board itself, right on, it is not a complete strategic plan. Right on. And right. I can, I and that's can talk not just about, about, that's not just about like, we're going to, the board is going to raise 10% more money. It's so not about that. It's about right. what is that engine need to look like to that's support right. the staff engine in the execution of the plan. That is so right on. So, you know, our strategic business plan has attendant specific strategic plans around important planks in the business plan, one of them being a strategic board development plan. What are the gaps? What are the skills we need? And certainly it talks about resources as well. But board members are not just bringing money. They're bringing wisdom and strategy. And you have to make sure that all the things that make your wheel go round are represented in your board composition. The, um, I was going to ask you what lessons you learned in the Uber relationship, but I'm, I'm going to tell you the lesson I learned. Um, the lesson that I learned is that you want to surround yourself 
on boards and in your staff with people who begin sentences with, wouldn't it be great if? I think that's an awesome way to think about it. <laughs> I, I, I'm almost thinking I might change the title of the podcast. Um, <laughs> right. And that wouldn't it be great if, and that that room is filled with people who are sort of ready to take that leap with you as opposed yeah. to, yeah, you know, pigs are going to have wings before Uber will even take our call. Yeah. And right. let me say, let me tell you, it was a, a development director who went to Uber and opened the door and made that pitch. And that development director is thrilled to get that $50,000 a year, which then goes to helping us match more kids. Because you know what? The more kids we're matching, the more the door opens to more funding everywhere. Um, so I could ask you a, a bunch more questions, but we're just about out of time. So I'm going to ask you the most important one, and it relates to matching kids. And I want you to tell me you're a big to someone named Chanel. Do I have that That's right? right? You've got it right. Um, uh, so just give us a snapshot about Chanel and your relationship with her, because I want this work to come to life for people who are listening. That's awesome. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So first, let me say that um, I did not become a mentor in my first couple of years in this organization because I was getting my feet wet first in nonprofit and then I became CEO and I felt I needed to have the time. And then you were merging and acquiring and strategizing. <laughs> and all that other exciting yeah, yeah. stuff. You had a few things on your plate. Yeah. So like every, like many people, the time commitment was something that I thought long and hard about. But then I said to myself, I cannot ask people to do what I won't do myself. And so uh, I applied to be a mentor along with the everybody else who applies. And I went through the same paces and, uh, I was matched. I asked for, um, a, a young girl who was shy because I thought I could do a great job bringing a shy little girl out of her shell. And instead I was given a little girl with the world's most gigantic personality. <laughs> and I was, uh, I, I, I continue to reflect on the fact that I was given exactly um, the, the youth that I was meant to have. And Chanel and I were matched when she was seven and in second grade. And she is just about to complete ninth grade and she is 15. So we've had a long journey together that I hope will go on forever. Um, and our relationship when she was younger was um, about doing lots of enriching things uh, and, and getting to know one another. And then it became very much about mentoring her as a elementary student going to middle school and then middle school to high school. And now that she's in high school, our relationship has transitioned again. And it's, um, you know, she's dealing with tough stuff. She's a ninth grader. High school is hard. Social things are hard. Um, there's a lot going on in her life. And this has been a very bumpy year for her. And I continue to be I'm so thrilled to have her friendship in my life. It has given me so much joy and I continue to be incredibly humbled by her every single day. Um, I ask myself all the time if I'm, if I'm the best mentor I can be to her. Um, but the reward to me, the insights I have gained, the, um, the knowledge of the, of the barriers that so many children face um, walking inside of her schools and understanding what that's like. I mean, it's been an incredibly powerful 
eye-opening experience for me just as it relates to inequity. And on a personal note, just an incredibly powerful journey of friendship. And there's, you know, Chanel and I live 1.2 miles away from each other. And there's almost zero chance that we ever would have met. And what I think about the unsung aspect of this program is absolutely we are changing children's lives, but we are also connecting people in community who would otherwise never meet in really powerful ways that strengthens the very bonds and the fabric of the community. Everybody's changed. I'm getting more out of this, I think, sometimes than, than Chanel is. So uh, as a last question, if um, anybody who is listening, <laughs> who's a nonprofit leader running their own show, um, if you or somebody you know is interested <laughs> in learning more about Big Brothers, Big Sisters, what should they do? And just really quickly, um, the, the, the time commitment isn't terribly onerous, is it? It is not. It's It roughly equates to about an hour a week, a couple hours, a couple times a month. Right. And it quickly becomes a joy that you then can't imagine. What were you doing with the time that you thought you didn't have? Right. Um, as with anything that's a joy in your life, you make time for it. Uh, and the reward is outstanding. So what anyone can do who wants to get, in, get involved is just go to bbbs.org for bigbrothersbigsisters.org. And you can find out more and enroll right there online. And presumably I can put in uh, my own zip code and find a place in a chapter or an affiliate that is uh, near me. And that's um, what will happen. That's exactly right. And then you will very rapidly be contacted and at your own pace, whether it's quick or slowly, you can move uh, uh, rapidly toward a match. Last question. How, uh, how many bigs, how many bigs are there in the United States today, right now, would you guess? Uh, there are approximately 200,000 um, Big Brother, Big Sister mentors. And then if you connect everybody who's connected to kids in some program or another, I mean, there are, there are millions. Um, but uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters has a plan to grow and to reach many, many, many more children. And uh, we are intent upon doing that. So we need anyone who has ever, ever considered this to step forward and take a child under your wing. Well, scaling, uh, growing, um, having greater impact feels like it is part of your DNA. So um, I will just say that organizations that want to impact the world have to have an eye toward growth. I absolutely believe it. And so you've got to have a strong plan that puts all the pieces together and then you have to deliver. And if you do that, your flywheel continues to hum along. Um, so let's leave it right there. Um, uh, Wendy Foster, um, I'm glad that, that uh, AOL uh, completed its mission so that you could uh, go find one that will, um, will last you a very, very long time. The nonprofit sector is a, uh, uh, really happy to – we should all send a thank you note to AOL. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't well, know what that address would be, but nonetheless. I'm, I'm sending a thank you note right back to the nonprofit sector. It's been there you an go. absolute joy. It continues to be. Great. Well, um, again, uh, learn more at bbbs.org. Um, and I hope that uh, this, in listening to this podcast, you took away a lot about um, 
a lot of things, right? About what corporate partnerships look like, about being aspirational, um, about touching the work, right? Wendy would not be as effective a CEO if not for Chanel, right? Chanel has enriched her personal life, but also her professional ability to lead her organization. So don't forget, keep touching the work, um, look in the mirror and say, yep, I'm, my cape may be tattered, but I am a nonprofit superhero. So thanks for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.